everybody sugared. Everybody had maples around their house, their farm, and gathered. So it was just what you did. Like you had to raise a garden and you made syrup and that's how it was. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. In northern Vermont's Lamoille County, Butternut Mountain Farm produces, packages, and distributes maple syrup. The family-owned business, which works with a network of sugar makers across Vermont, was started by David Marvin in the 1970s. A love for maple sugaring runs deep in the Marvin family. David's father was Dr. James Wallace Marvin, a botanist who dedicated his life's work to understanding the flow of sap. He was also the co-founder of UVM's Proctor Maple Research Center. Butternut Mountain Farm is now operated by David's children, Emma and Ira. They grew up spending time at Butternut Mountain's retail store on Main Street in Johnson and at the family sugar house three miles down the road. I met up with the Marvin family on a recent morning in Johnson. We start with David talking about how his father inspired him. It's hard to know where the inspiration came from with my father's work and my interest in maple. The earliest memory I have is of tasting syrup right off the evaporator at the Proctor Farm. Um, After coming in from helping, well, it wasn't much of a help, but riding on the sled gathering sap behind the bulldozer. When I was about 10 years old, I wanted to make syrup myself, and my father got eight buckets for me, and I had an old garbage can, a galvanized trash can that I had over a little wood-fired arch, and I boiled on that. I burned it up, actually, at one point, so every sugar maker has to burn a pan at some point, and fortunately, I got that out of the way when I was 10, but I then got a two-by-two flat pan with a real draw-off on it, and that that was amazing to me. It's something my father, I guess, had made a liter evaporator when I was down in Battery Street in Burlington. I then worked at the Proctor Farm when I was in college, but even before then, I had this idea that I was never an academic, but that maple had real potential to be a great way to make a living off the land in Vermont because you could just go to the woods with some hard work and a little capital and come out with something you could sell. And you realize that from a young age? Yeah. I've been kind of focused on doing this all my life. So part of the land where the Maple Sugar Farm is in Johnson, that was owned by your dad? Yeah, my folks bought the first piece of land on what's our farm now in 1953. And then I settled there on a piece of land I bought adjacent to that in 1970. And subsequently, I purchased one of my sister's property that she'd inherited. And in later years, my wife Lucy and I bought two more parcels that adjoined the farm. So when your dad bought the piece of land, he bought it as a place to get away, but he also knew that it would be a good place for sugaring? Yeah, he he and my mother had purchased a piece of land as something that he could work on in Underhill, but it didn't satisfy my mother. It was a place where the sun rose at 10 o'clock and set at 2 o'clock in the winter. And so Dad put the word out that he was looking for a real potential sugar woods opportunity, but it needed to be 
ideally at the end of a town road facing south with power <laughs> and an extension dairyman of well-renowned who lived here in Johnson, Dick Dodge, told my father about the farm that he and my mother then bought in 1953. And then they added four parcels to their original purchase. And so who named it Butternut Mountain Farm? Did you name it that? I did that because it's on Butternut Mountain, and Butternut Mountain is a place and place name. So, right. Yeah. I was reading in Esther Swift's book, Vermont Place Names, about Butternut Mountain, and I guess it's the tallest peak with entirely within the town of Johnson. And it's named after the butternut trees, I guess, that used to stand there. That's correct. There still are butternut trees, but fewer and fewer because of a canker that's causing mortality. But when I was a a kid, there were lots of butternuts on the mountain. Butternut is one of two species of juglans, the Latin name, and the other is black walnut. So it is a nut tree. The butternut is a very sweet nut. When it falls, it's green and sticky. And if it's allowed to dry, it shrivels a little bit, the outer skin, and it becomes very dark brown. It was used to make dye in colonial era, perhaps Native Americans too. Extremely hard to crack. It's not something you can crack with a nutcracker. You need a strong, strong vice or better, a hammer and an anvil. And there's not a lot of meat in it, but it's very, very sweet. And butternuts mixed with maple fudge make the best maple fudge that there is. Ira and I collected butternuts one time. (laughs) I don't know if he remembers, but we were canoeing on the Lamoille River, and butternuts often occur on a kind of a silty loam along the river. We pulled up on an island just east of Johnson, and we filled the canoe so full, we thought we were going to swamp it getting to shore, but we pulled it off to the side of the road, and I got the truck, and we we had enough butternuts there to last us two or three winters. What does a butternut look like? It's a black or dark, dark brown, charcoal-colored, shriveled skin, and then when it's opened up, it looks a lot like a walnut. We had a, well, actually, it was Dick Dodge's son-in-law when he was retired, used to enjoy cracking the nuts and then picking them out while he was sitting in the evening watching television. And we provided him with bushels of nuts that he would open and then sell back to us. And we sold them here at the store for years in little bags and very expensive. If if you're paid by the hour, they would have sold for hundreds of dollars an ounce, but we didn't do that. <laughs> so you started sugaring in 1972, is that right? I started the farm in 1972. I left full-time work. I worked for two years for the U.S. Forest Service and Maple Research and started the farm in July of 72. That is preparing a site to build a sugar house, building a sugar house, putting in main lines and all. Our first sugaring season was the spring of 1973. Okay. And that wasn't a great time for sap production. Is that right? Well, it was a good time for sap production. It just wasn't very... Profitable? It wasn't a very prosperous time in the maple industry until, well, there's a lot of history, but until the 1880s, maple was cheaper than cane sugar. And so it was It was the common everyday sweetener. And it really remained that for Vermonters through the Depression and even into World War II when there was rationing of sugar. But by the time I got into the business, most people were making syrup and selling it in order to 
buy fertilizer or seed for their spring crops or to pay off the grain bill that they'd incurred over the winter. It was a marginal activity that people could do when they weren't doing any other farm chores around small-scale dairy. But as the dairies began to wane once the bulk tank law came into effect, sugaring also declined. And it's interesting because a few years ago you were interviewed in the Washington Post, Butternut Mountain Farm was featured, and the numbers in that story just stood out to me so much. It said that in the early 20th century, Vermont produced more than 9 million gallons of maple syrup a year. That's incredible. It is incredible, and I thought about it a lot, and I've looked at a lot of the old photos, and then and then when you see stone walls high on the mountains and in the woods where foresters we do, we cruise a lot of land, and you can see evidence of old homesteads everywhere. Vermont was 25% wooded and 75% open land at the turn of the last century. But that open land wasn't what we think of as big fields. It was wooded pasture, much of it. On Butterna Mountain, there are, I can count, seven, eight, nine sugaring sites that were used at various times by settlers. And so what my assumption is, is that everybody sugared and that everybody had maples around their house, their farm and and gathered. So it was just what you did, like you had to raise a garden and you made syrup and that's how it was. Do you have any idea how they calculated that number? Well, I don't, except that Maple History at UVM would be able to verify the, the dates, but it was around that time that there was a sugar tax. And so that, you know, the treasury is pretty good at counting things when there's a tax involved. So there are good records from the time when maple sugar was taxed, just like white sugar. And then in contrast to that, when you started maple sugaring in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I read that Vermont was making about 250,000 gallons a year, and now the number is about 2 million gallons. Yeah, I think the worst year for Vermont production when I, about the time I started was around 220,000 gallons, and last year we made 2.2 million, or 2.4 million, I think. So it's been revolutionized by, primarily by technology, but also because it is a profitable endeavor, and one of the things I say is that in natural resources, whether it's farming or other kinds of things that are extractive. I mean, the capital flows to where there's an economic opportunity, and maple is that opportunity right now in Vermont agriculture. Right. The bad years, quote-unquote bad years that you had, were those weather-related? Like what you mean ma- when it was so small? Yes. No, people just had abandoned maple. Oh. It wasn't It wasn't worth bothering with it it was there was so much labor to produce a wood pile to boil the sap it was so much labor to gather buckets there wasn't a lot of help around syrup wasn't worth a lot it was a regionally available product Mm -hmm. and what's revolutionized it has been tubing which allowed people to go further into the woods and steeper more remote places than you could gather vacuum which has increased the yield per tap significantly and then reverse osmosis which has reduced the labor and particularly the energy to go into producing a gallon of syrup so we use 80 percent fewer btus than we did when i started so it's been those things that have allowed maple to expand and then with that has been the expansion of the market 
when I started, everybody, it was so common to say, oh, I've got friends in Arkansas or California, and they've never seen maple. They don't know what it is, and they can't get it. Today, there isn't a supermarket in America that doesn't have some facings of pure maple syrup on the shelf, which is really a success story. It really is. And when you started in the early 1970s, you were sugaring full-time, but you were also working other jobs. You were a bartender, a forester. You were growing Christmas trees. I started planting Christmas trees in 1970 in order to have an alternative seasonal enterprise to sugaring. And that worked well because it kept the folks who worked with me busy when we weren't sugaring. And then we did brush mowing, and I, I logged and built a forestry consulting clientele and yeah, whatever it took to did produce you, some revenue. Did you think the maple sugaring would work out at that time, or were you— Yes. You did? I was sure it would. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because one of the great things about it was that it was an opportunity for me to take product right to the market. Had I been more interested in dairy or something like that, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I saw that there was an opportunity to build a market for our own crop. And then, particularly after a couple of difficult, poor crops in the 80s, buying syrup and aggregating that, I could have an enterprise that was really a marketing enterprise as well as the production enterprise. Butternut Mountain Farm, it's a big operation, but there's something about it that still feels small, local. You have your maple sugar farm up the road, three miles up the road. You have a store right on Main Street in Johnson. And I know you have your facility over in Morrisville, but it doesn't feel like a big... Is that intentional? How we've developed isn't so much intentional as um, opportunistic and it's just sort of happened. But we're, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, we're not a big company. We may be big for this part of Vermont, but and we're a family business, thankfully, and we deal with families. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about one family in Northern Franklin County. I worked with the patriarch there when I was working for the Forest Service in one of our studies. And last week, I got a call from his grandson, who's now doing the boiling and running the farm. So there's three generations I've worked with, and it feels really good. I bet. And a lot of it's just those personal relationships. And, exactly. Right. We do an awful lot of business the old-fashioned way where the contract and bond is a handshake or just a verbal, yeah, we're going to do this. That's really nice. And something that stood out to me in that Washington Post article, and this also made me feel that kind of that local spirit that comes with butternut is you said part of the magic of maple is that we don't know everything and I hope we never do. What did you mean by that? Well, right now, everybody in the maple industry, as an example, is wondering what kind of a year it's going to be. And it's either going to be good or bad or average. <laughs> and we don't know that yet. And yet, you would think we would. We would be able to look at a 10-day forecast and determine whether it's going to be a good flow day or not. But we don't know that. We don't know everything by any means about what makes that flow. We know that there was some impact from last year's growing season. We know there was some impact by how much moisture was in the ground last November, but they don't dictate what's happening. There's just a lot of mystery. And we have to remember, as Europeans here or as those who come here who weren't Native American, we've experienced only one rotation in the life of a maple tree. And certainly in the research period that 
The University of Vermont's been working on maple since starting in the late 1800s. We're still only about halfway through the lifespan of a maple tree. It's not like corn or peas or something where you can look at multiple crops in one year that were forced in a greenhouse and understand how it all works. We've got to wait a few more centuries to really know what there is to know. What's the oldest tree that you have producing syrup at your farm? I don't know how old the oldest tree is we have. There are some that are pretty decadent now that I know were sugared in the late 1800s because there are sugar roads there by them that went down to the sugar house just below the building we're in now. The example of how old a maple tree can be that I always like to refer to is about a maple tree that was cut down in the, I think it was in the 80s, near West Point, New York, and it had a Revolutionary War cannonball embedded in it. So it had to have been big enough to accept a cannonball during the Revolution and lived until the 1980s. That's an old tree. Emma and Ira Marvin became owners of Butternut Mountain Farm in 2020. Emma attended Cornell and started working for the family business in 2004. Ira went to UVM and joined the company in the mid-aughts. Today, Emma can be found at the company's Morrisville facility while Ira is at the sugar house or working in the woods. When the conversation came up about the transition, the succession, if you will, was that a hard conversation? I mean, did you talk about it together, like as a family, also with your dad? What was that like? Or was it kind of an easy decision? I think at that point, it was kind of an easy decision because it's a conversation we'd been having for a long time in informal ways over the dinner table and at work in the office. And while it was a big decision, I wouldn't say it was a hard decision. Hmm. What about you, Ira? Yeah, I would say it was a natural progression. I also would say, what was the alternative? selling the business. I mean, so to some extent, figuring out what that succession plan was, was important and whether it was going to continue to be in the family or not. Right. That makes sense. You know, it's easy to romanticize running a maple sugar business. You think, oh, you just work a couple months a year and collect syrup and sell it and how great, but the reality is very different. What is the reality of working in the maple sugar business, maple syrup business? It's 24-7. There is never a slow time. So different parts of the business are busy at different times of the year. Obviously, the farm is incredibly busy right now with sugaring season underway. In late spring, early summer, we're really busy bringing in the crop from the producers that choose to sell their year's production to us. And by the time we're in summer, we're really busy making sure we have enough product in our inventories to supply our customers and consumers who think, oh, pancakes, French toast, waffles, when the weather starts to get cold and they really start to consume more maple syrup. And that consumption pattern continues right through the cold weather months. And then it's time for sugaring season to start again. Right, there it is again. Yeah. And what about out in the woods, Ira? Are you doing a lot of like forest management or what goes on? Yeah, so it's seasonal. Uh, I mean, this time of year, we're checking vacuum, getting ready for the weather to change so that we can start boiling and having the sap flow. Once the season's over, it's pulling spouts out, working on those projects that'll get ready for the next year. And then in the fall, prepping to make sure anything that we need to finish up, we get finished up, and then, you know, we'll start tapping and 
do it all over again. Right. What are the ideal weather conditions for sap to run? Cold nights, warm days. How warm? Depends on if it's cloudy or not. So, you know, above freezing, mid 40s, 50s. If it's bright sun in 70s, that's probably not ideal. So last year was a great example. Most people were not happy when it was 50 and kind of cloudy. And we were like, this is perfect weather. So, you know. What about when it's sunny? Does that make a difference? If it's too sunny, so the air temperature may be, and there's a lot of other studies, but the air temperature still may not be cold, but the twigs and the bark will heat up. So, you know, that bright sun can actually have the tree warm up more, but the air temperature is still cold enough that, you know, the sap doesn't flow as well as it might otherwise if the air temperature was also warm. Is there a fact about maple sugaring or a myth out there or a fact that's little known that you could share with us? So I think there are a few things that are actually maybe quite obvious when you sit down and think about them, but not necessarily front of mind. So one is people think about wild crafted foods. Maple syrup's a wild crafted food. It comes from a wild grown plant. That's pretty cool to find something like that in probably every grocery store across the country and on most breakfast tables when there's pancakes, waffles, or French toast for breakfast. So I think that's one thing that's pretty amazing in today's world. I think the fact that it's a single ingredient food product that's been harvested from these wild grown plants for generations, that's pretty amazing. The fact that it's only made here in the northeastern part of North America, it's pretty cool. There are very few food products today that remain as endemic as maple syrup is. And it is truly an American food in a way that few others are, maybe cranberries or blueberries, turkey. The fact that as we think about what the future looks like as it relates to climate change, this is a food product that actually helps to keep some of the best carbon sinks in the world intact because that biomass is staying in place. We're only taking a little tiny bit of that stored carbon in the form of sugar to make maple syrup. That's pretty cool. For us personally, I think it's incredibly cool that we have this family connection and heritage and living in a place like Vermont, the cultural components that come with maple syrup production are pretty amazing. And they really are passed down from generation to generation. Some people wonder why does Vermont make so much more maple syrup than everywhere else? And a huge part of it is culture. So those are a few of the things that I think are really special about maple. Definitely. It's funny too, because right, maple syrup is, you know, in every grocery store in America, but then when you have some curiosity and start thinking about it and asking questions, it's, it's fascinating. You know, there's a lot, there's so much there. I think every Vermonter is an ambassador for this product. I get the luxury of getting to interact with people who find our product in different places when they're traveling and the excitement that happens when they make that connection. And I also often get to hear the stories of Vermonters who are out there saying, oh my gosh, I met someone who'd never experienced pure maple syrup before and I had the opportunity to share that with them. And that's pretty amazing to have a place where people are as passionate about a food product as Vermonters are about maple syrup. You're the next generation of maple sugar producers. What do you think the future holds? 
I think there's a ton of opportunity. I think that we're at a moment in time where people are caring more and more about where their food comes from, how it's produced. They're caring more about what they choose to put in their bodies. And don't get me wrong, maple is a sugar. But if you're going to eat sugar, it's one of the best sugars out there you can eat because of all of its attributes and how it's produced, where it comes from. It makes it pretty special. This winter, especially just because the weather's been weird, it's been warm, it's gone super cold. You know, a lot of people are talking about climate change and warming winters and all of that. Does, you know, and of course the ski industry, it's like, what's the future of skiing? Can you say how it will affect maple sugaring yet? Is it a discussion that's ongoing? Yeah, I think, you know, it's like a lot of things you end up adapting. So we used to start tapping around town meeting day and then you want to be ready by town meeting day. And as we've seen the weather patterns change, now we want to be tapped once, you know, the weather gets cold enough and get into the woods and really be ready. So I think we're adapting in that sense that make sure you're ready for whatever the weather brings and it's farming. So, you know, right. you do what you can do and what you end up with is what you end up with. So how many trees do you have tapped? A little over 30,000. 30,000. And, and how many, you have tubes, right? Lots and lots, lots, and lots of, of miles tubes. of tubing and mainline yep, to connect all the trees. And how many acres would you say is the farm? The farm's 840 acres, and, you know, we tap probably 400-plus acres of that, so not all of it. Are people surprised by that? Because, again, that Washington Post article, I read Mark Isselhart. He was quoted as saying, the imagery of maple hasn't really moved out of the 1860s, but the technology has. So instead of sap buckets and horses, you have these miles and miles of tubes. Are people surprised when you tell them that? Like, do people still think it's sort of this old-fashioned enterprise? I think outside of Vermont, a lot of people have no idea where maple syrup comes from. So I'm not sure that there is a lot of surprise necessarily. If there's surprise, it's at how much effort goes into making maple syrup. It's the fact that it truly does come from the woods and a tree and maybe less about the collection mechanisms. What are you most hopeful about? Well, right now I'm hopeful for a good sugaring season. <laughs> I think for me it's about continuing to provide opportunities for the next generation, both our kids and then families of other producers, and then also being able to provide sweetener to anyone that wants to enjoy maple syrup. For more information, visit butternutmountainfarm.com. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. I'm Erica Housekeeper. You can find more stories on my website, happyvermont.com. To help support this podcast, please join Happy Vermont's Patreon and receive stickers, apparel, and extra content. And if you have a story idea or just want to say hi, send me an email at hello at happyvermont.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care and talk to you soon. <music>